My guest today on The Scholars is Dr. Gemma Sharp, a clinical psychologist with an expertise in breast cancer, body image, eating disorders, mental health, and cosmetic procedures. Dr. Gemma Sharp, welcome to The Scholars Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, is it true to begin that you have seven university degrees? That is true, Justin. Um, I I have. How does that happen? I think it means just studying over quite a long period of time, and I suppose changing your mind on your direction about halfway through. I think that's how you can end up with seven degrees fairly readily. Can you list them off for us, please? Okay. Um, I'll just remember the letters after my name. Just hold on a moment. So um, I have a Bachelor of Science in Molecular Biology from the University of Adelaide. And I also have an honours degree in, um, in Immunology. I have a Diploma of Languages in Japanese, also from the University of Adelaide. And then I was lucky enough to go to the University of Cambridge and get a Master of Science in Oncology. And then I came back to Adelaide Uni to do um, a graduate diploma in psychological sciences. And then I went to Flinders University and got an honours degree in psychology. And then I ended with a PhD in clinical psychology, also from Flinders University. I hope that's seven. (laughs) Yeah, seven. There used to be a show on TV called Eight is Enough. Is seven enough for you? You know what? I wouldn't. I wouldn't rule it out entirely, Justin. But I think seven is sufficient for the time being. I think it's got me exactly where I want to be. Um, but who knows if I make it to my seventies or eighties, and universities are still offering degrees to people like me, I might give it a try. So, can you talk us through your field of expertise? I know I mentioned in that introduction it's quite broad, but you clearly have uh, a lot of strings to your bow. Yes, I, I was quite interested like hearing you read that off. It's something I don't often think about, that kind of broad expertise. And I suppose um, it can be described as um, uh, like the physical sciences or lab sciences all the way through to the social sciences or psychological sciences. So I think I'm, I'm pretty fortunate that I can uh, span that broad spectrum of science all the way from doing experiments in the lab to um, to conducting clinical trials with mental health interventions. So what was it that made you want to head down the pathway that you at least initially took? Yes, um, I really loved biology and chemistry in high school, and that's how I ended up in molecular biology at the University of Adelaide. But I also mentioned that I, I loved... Um, I also did a diploma of languages in Japanese and so I've always loved the use of language as well and I think I always tried to combine those two and I ended up uh, before I went to Cambridge working for a year at Meiji University which is in Kawasaki City in Japan and so I was very lucky that I got to combine um, science and Japanese together before going off to to Cambridge. So I think there's always been, I suppose, this song, strong scientific uh, bent to my knowledge, as well as uh, the love of uh, language. And I think psychology, where I ended up, is pretty much those two combined, that 
doing a lot of talk therapy um, in a scientific way. So I think it's no surprise that I ended up in clinical psychology at the end. I'm going to presume you were a pretty good student at school. I did really enjoy school. Um, I think I think I love the diversity of subjects and all of their fun extracurricular activities. I still think I'm at school in a way because I work at Monash University. I suppose I'm just the teacher side now instead of the student. But I think I think any of us who end up working in universities just love that educational environment. What uh, if I went and spoke to some of your old teachers? What would they say about you? That's a great question, Justin, and I would encourage you to do that just to see if I'm just to see if I'm accurate. I think, gosh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I think I'd like to think they'd say I was a good student. Um, I think they might say I was a bit challenging. Uh, just that I. I suppose I um I didn't always accept what they said. I, I was a bit of a challenging student. I'd say, why do you think that is? And maybe they didn't always have the answers. And so they might think I was a bit, maybe even a bit difficult, some of them. But I think others really loved that I, I, I um, had an inquisitive mind. So probably a bit of a mixed bag there. So you're a John Monash scholar. Talk me through how that all came about. I was one of the earlier John Monash scholars, so I applied in 2006 and was um, fortunate enough to be selected in that first year. Uh, so the the scholarships have been running a couple of years before that. I think I um, <laughs> this is this will sound bizarre, but I think when I was a very little girl. I uh, always wanted to study at Oxford or Cambridge. I think I was about three or four and I told my mother that. And uh, she was like, yeah, let's, let's, uh, you go for that. <laughs> I don't think she honestly thought I would get there. Um, and so I think um, that, that had always been a goal of mine. And so once I, I finished my honours degree at, at uh, University of Adelaide in 2005, I, um, I, I mentioned before that I did that year in Japan and it was actually that year that I applied for the uh, John Monash scholarships. I really liked how there was, um, I suppose, no age restrictions. You could study anywhere in the world. Uh, I suppose, uh, unlike some other um, high-ranking scholarships that I won't mention, I think it just had a, a wonderful diversity. And also um, uh, John Monash himself is a really a really wonderful person, um, and who wouldn't want to win a scholarship in his name? And it's quite funny that I've ended up at Monash University now um, for my career. You've gone full circle. Exactly. I'm just I'm pure Monash. Uh, so yeah, I, I applied in while I lived in Japan, which was really quite interesting uh, because I had to fly back um, for the for the interviews, both at the South Australian level and then at the national level. I remember this is this is how far back it's going. I actually had to uh, send through paper versions of my application. It wasn't online then. In fact, that's a bit more of a recent thing. And I um I had to take them to a post office, and it was bucketing down with rain. And I remember like tucking up these papers under my jumper to make sure that they weren't wet. It was just so surreal, like walking to the post office from my university. It was only about a kilometer away. And sending all these things off to Australia, and the um, the people at the post office were really quite interested in why I had such so many papers. 
to be sent to Australia. So I remember telling the people at, at the post office uh, what I was doing too. So you got the green light to finally study in England. Tell us a bit about your experience studying at Cambridge. I think Cambridge is unlike anywhere else. I think people who, who go to who, who go to Oxford would say exactly the same thing. Um, uh, and I, I was lucky to uh, live in Trinity College as well, which is uh, I suppose, considered the most swish of all the colleges. And so I think it's just, yeah, if you haven't been there, it's it's hard to describe. Um, and I was working at a brand new cancer research centre as well, which was uh, next to, or I suppose, part of the Addenbrooke's uh, hospital complex. And it was just, the the facilities were just amazing. I um I think just any of the experiments I'd only sort of dreamed of beforehand were a reality in Cambridge, which was amazing. And I remember running microarrays, which were quite a new technology then. I would never have been able to do that um, in Adelaide, unfortunately. Of course, I can do it now, but back then that wouldn't have been the case. And obviously met loads of wonderful people while I was there from all over the world. I um, I was part of uh, several varsity winning swimming competitions against Oxford, so that was great to beat Oxford. Um, I think, yeah, it's just, I suppose the world's kind of your oyster really in Cambridge. There's just so many amazing things that you can do both with your studies and externally too. And how long were you there for? I was there for two and a bit years. The time went really, really quickly, I must say. Um, and I think it was while I was in Cambridge doing that work that I was like, wow, I'm in this such an amazing place. But um, the work I'm doing doesn't seem to quite fit 100% with my interests. And so that's that was when I was like, you know, if you're not if you're not absolutely 100% loving the work here, then it's probably time to um, to consider pivoting your career a little bit. And so, what did that look like? I know you've you've returned to Melbourne now. You're teaching in Melbourne. So, where where have you, where have you ended up now? I well, I I'm in a really lovely place now. So I'm uh, on an NHMRC. So that's the National Health and Medical Research Council. I'm on an early career fellowship, and I started that in 2018. Um, and I'm in the health professional category, which means I get to combine research with my clinical psychology practice. So that is exactly what I wanted to do. I was just so happy when I, I was able to win that fellowship the very first time as well, a very lucky first time too. Um, so I work at uh, the Alfred campus, so again, another hospital campus. And I do, I lead the body image research group at our unit, which is fantastic. And, um, and I also run my own private practice. So it really is, it is exactly where I wanted to be. So you, you transitioned essentially from medicine to clinical psychology. Exactly. And it really wasn't that big a transition. Um, I think it just, it felt very natural to me. And um, I, I find the role of psychologist to be a really wonderful opportunity to help people in a really direct way. I think that was something that I was lacking a bit before that I I was doing all this um, whiz-bang cancer research, but wasn't necessarily seeing the impacts directly. But if you're working with people directly, giving them therapy and seeing them improve, it's such a wonderful feeling. Give us a sense of what you do on a on a day to day basis. <laughs> That's such a good question, Justin. Oh my gosh, um, every day is so different. Um, I think obviously days where I'm working clinically, I'm seeing pa- lots and lots of patients, 
And I generally see people who have uh, body image issues, eating disorders or body dysmorphic disorder, but I also see people with other issues like PTSD, anxiety, depression. Um, so I have a really broad uh, patient load, which is, which is fantastic. Um, and I really love the, uh, running my own private practice. In terms of research, um, I'm, I have quite a lot of students at the moment, uh, PhD and honours. So I spend some of my day supervising them. I do give some lectures, although that's not the main part of my work. Um, I give lectures to the postgraduate clinical psychology students. So the ones who are in training to become fully fledged psychologists. And then I have a lot of different research projects. And I suppose the research project that I've been working on most recently, which is super exciting, um, is the development of a chatbot, which is a conversational agent that uses artificial intelligence technology. And we're developing a world first body image chatbot in collaboration with the Butterfly Foundation, who are our national eating disorder support service, and also Instagram, uh, who are, uh, of course, a wonderful social media platform, very, very popular. So it's uh, it's basically, I consider it to be me uh, as a robot, like me as a therapist, as a robot. <laughs> I'm talking to a robot. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. And I think all my patients would go, oh, that chatbot sounds exactly like Gemma. Um, but I, I wanted to have, I, I suppose, a therapeutic tool outside of sessions that would be reinforcing all of the messages that all of us psychologists say in sessions. And that's where the idea of the chatbot came from. So something that people can use on social media when they're feeling not very good about their body image and their mental health, it can provide them with skills and also link them in with the Butterfly Foundation if they want ongoing support. So that that has been my major project for this year. And I'm very lucky to work with some great people from Butterfly and Instagram, as I said, and our technical team, Proxima, and graphic design team, Yoke. I think that's everyone giving them all a plug. Thank you for allowing me that space. <laughs> What's, what sort of age groups do you work with? Yeah, I mean, um, these issues affect everyone really, from very young to, through to through to not so young. I tend to work with, I suppose, um, sixteen is the minimum I go, but that's certainly not the the youngest I could work with, and through to people in their sixties and seventies. So it's a really broad age range of people affected by these issues. And when you talk about body image, give us a sense of some of the problems that your patients come to you with? Yeah, I think, I suppose um, a body image is kind of that main trigger for the development of more serious disorders like eating disorders and body dysmorphic disorder. So I see people who... Um, who really dislike every part of their body. It's just, it's awful to to sort of hear how much they, they hate themselves. It is just, yeah, it, it's hard to listen to, even though I hear it all the time, it just how people dislike themselves so much. And of course, our body image impacts on lots of other areas of our lives, like our self-esteem overall. And so it's not just about, uh, I don't like how I look. It's like, I really don't like how I am. And then if that body image concern is severe enough, that can lead to restrictive eating practices, um, other eating practices like uh, binging, um, vomiting, taking laxatives, etc. So it can affect uh, eating practices. It can also lead people to exercise in a really driven way. So, for example, they'd never take a day off. They'd exercise through injury, um, just really, really uh, disturbing levels of exercise. Um, 
So that's kind of the eating disorder spectrum. The body dysmorphia, um, I mean, that's usually where people focus on a particular area of their body that they really don't like. And often they'll seek out cosmetic procedures to try and alleviate those concerns. But the problem is cosmetic surgery doesn't alleviate their concerns. So there'll be people who might go back for lots and lots of cosmetic procedures. So if you're thinking someone like Michael Jackson, you'd be spot on there with body dysmorphia. And sometimes if people get rejected for cosmetic surgeries they'll take matters into their own hands and do their own surgeries which of course is extremely dangerous Um, we've seen a bit of an upsurge in people doing their own cosmetic procedures during the lockdowns because they haven't had access so people doing their own lip fillers with um, (laughs) with with materials that should not be injected into the lips for example Um, it's just it's a real concern I think the I mean we encourage all cosmetic practitioners to screen for for these disorders, but it's not mandated. So people with body dysmorphia are getting cosmetic procedures done that aren't making them happy in any way. So presumably you've got some success stories where people who have come to you where they're at their wits end or they, they're just in a bad place and hopefully you've been able to help them. Yes, I've, I've been pretty lucky, Justin, that um, I've been able to help a lot of people, but of course, sometimes sometimes it's uh, you can't. Um, but I I know um, like when yeah when people come to me in a really bad way, as you said, often they'll come with their partner or their families as well, who are just as frustrated and upset as they are. And to see everyone leave in a much better state of mind, say you know what the number on the scale doesn't mean that much to me now. I've got a much richer life. My eating disorder isn't isn't um, taking over my brain anymore that's a really wonderful feeling. I wish I had it more. Um, it's, it's pretty difficult work. Um, and I think that's where the research comes in that I'm like, okay, these are our current treatments, but what can we do better? So I think that's where my clinical practice and research feed into each other. So your background in medicine then helped influence the way that you work in this field. Absolutely. And I think uh, particularly in the field of body image and eating disorders, we're always working in multidisciplinary teams. So I'm working with a GP, psychiatrist, nurse, dietitian. So I think being able to to sort of flip between that psychology headspace and more medical headspace is very, very helpful. So you mentioned Instagram before. Clearly that's taken over the world, but a lot of what you see on there is it's it's clearly not real. There's filters and it's just fake. How do you rationalize that with some of your patients? I think, yeah, it's, it, I mean, that's one of the things the chatbot really aims to do, Justin, is that it's show the sort of behind the scenes. And we're lucky to have some really cool videos showing how much uh, photos are touched up and things like that. I think it's really hard um, because we used to sort of have a celebrity culture where only they had access to those photo editing tools, but now we do as well. And the fact that we can edit our own photos makes it feel more achievable. It's like, oh, I just clicked on a few filters and look at that. Wow, my eyes are so much brighter. My skin is so much clearer. Um, so it, it is it is hard. And I think I we always encourage people to go filter free because that can be quite an empowering thing to, to post an unfiltered photo. And also that, um, as you said, uh, like, 
questioning what has gone into the photos that other people are posting so celebrities but also their friends how long have they spent touching that up and they know what their friend looks like in real life does it really match what they're posting online and I think social media is a very pressurized environment to show our best selves not even appearance wise it's sort of we're having the best holiday we're having the best breakfast um, we're buying the best clothes so it's about a sort of self-presentation bias of our lives and the young people I speak to it's almost like they have two distinct lives they have their online lives and, and their in-person lives. And they really value their online lives almost more than their in-person lives. And I'm like, but really, this is the life that you're living. But they're like, no, no, I'm judged for my online life very strictly. Is the whole issue of negative body image a big problem in Australia? It so is, Justin. I think people really underestimate this. I think they think it's just young girls that have these issues, but it's really not. I can tell you from my clinical practice, our research, our statistics, that they affect people of all genders, ages, backgrounds, body sizes. I think the latest... um, survey I saw from the Butterfly Foundation estimated 43% of Australians have um, body image concerns. And I think that's even an underestimate, but almost one in two people are struggling with body image concerns. So as an expert in this field, what's what are some of the biggest challenges working in this space? Uh, Justin, I could, I could talk for hours on this, but I won't. Um, I think... I suppose um, some of them I've already touched on a little bit in that people um, misunderstand who body image concerns affect. They don't realise it affects literally everyone they're encountering almost, that it's across the lifespan. I think also that body image concerns are very much normalised, which is a real worry. Like people go, oh, it's normal to not like bits about yourself, but really it, it shouldn't be. Um, it's not, it's not part of self-improvement. I think like, um, you know, obtaining a new skill from a university is self-improvement. Um, I think wanting to radically change your appearance, I wouldn't consider self-improvement as such. Um, so I think again, yeah, that people, people, um, normalize it. They think it's an issue of vanity as well. They really downplay the, the sort of the mental health implications of these concerns, which are related to, um, depression, anxiety, substance abuse. So it's not just, oh, I'm I'm superficial or vain. It's really none of those things. It's that I really dislike myself and it's really impacting my day-to-day functioning. So you're joining us today from Melbourne. Uh, it's home for you now. And me- Melbourne is the, the hotspot of coronavirus, certainly in Australia. What, what a wonderful title to have, the hotspot of coronavirus. <laughs> the hotspot. What, what has life been like for you over the past couple of months? Uh, so very different. Um, I, I just, I can't even, I just think back on 2019 and just think, wow, none of us would have ever thought 2020 would have looked like this. Um, I haven't worked from from Monash in several months now because it's just not safe for me to do so. I mentioned earlier that I'm on the Alfred campus and there's a, a COVID unit there. And so uh, it's it's just not safer for all of us to be working there at the moment. I've also had to shift my clinical practice to completely telehealth. 
I mentioned before that I, I work with a lot of eating disorder patients who have uh, who are immunocompromised, so it's just not safe for, to ask to see them in person. So telehealth is the safest way for me to see them and keep their therapy going. But it, it is really hard because, of course, I would be prefer to be seeing people in person rather than telehealth. Um, but, yeah, it's just meant that I've my home has become my office as well as my living Exactly, exactly. Everyone knows this. It's been, and I suppose um, a lot of my patients have been saying it's been really hard to separate work from normal life. And I think people have been having a ten if they're if they're lucky enough to still have their jobs, um, a tendency towards overwork. And so that's what I've been dealing a lot with in my clinical practice as well. People just going, I feel like I'm just working twenty four seven now, and that seems really normalised. And so I've been encouraged them to. Um, put in both sort of physical and mental barriers around their work days, so such that it doesn't bleed into bleed into their normal lives. And I think in terms of their normal lives, it's been really hard because they can't do a lot of the activities they they love and and usually help to improve their mental health. So that that's been really hard as well. So has the lockdown in Victoria seen a spike uh, in work for you, particularly with patients who are having a bit of a tough time of things? I wish I couldn't say that, Justin, but yes, I've never been busier in my life. I think uh, all of us in mental health, we would prefer not to be as busy as we are. Um, I have a very long wait list at the moment. I wish it wasn't that wasn't that situation. I wish I was able to see everyone as quickly as I could. Um, so yes, we've been seeing um, lots of lots of busy psychologists as well as the helplines have been absolutely flooded like lifeline butterfly helpline beyond blue they've all seen massive spikes in the number of people reaching out and i think it shows that our mental health workforce is not big enough to deal with this increased demand and so that's why i'm building things like chatbots and other digital mental health tools such that we can try to um, i suppose plug the gap of where in-person mental health is just not available for everyone. Yeah, try to scale things a little bit if you can. Exactly, exactly. That that was another, I suppose, um, the chatbot idea came about before COVID-19, but certainly it has meant that we have tried to rush it through as fast as we can because we know that people... Um, that there's not enough psychologists, psychiatrists, other mental health professionals to see everyone with these concerns. So how does the chatbot actually work? If if I'm struggling with a mental health issue and really need to talk to someone and it's out of hours, what I can I can log on and just start typing and I get a I get a response. You do, yeah. So there's kind of two pathways to access the chatbot. There's through um, through advertisements on Instagram, and it's also sitting on the Butterfly website as well. And it is there twenty four seven. And um, it, it, yeah, absolutely, you can start typing and chatting with it anytime you'd like. Uh, we're actually in the moment of developing the chatbot character, which is very exciting, um, just to see it come to life in character form as well. Um, so yeah, it does aim to be that twenty four seven service. Uh, it's it, and of course, if someone needs more support than the chatbot can give, there's always we always link into Butterfly Helpline and the Lifeline service as well. So it's not saying that it's replacing in person support. We know it could never do that. So knowing where you are now, if you think back to when you first left school, can you? join the dots and think, oh, th- there's no way I could have envisaged that I ended up doing what I'm doing now? 
I think yes and no, if I could give two different answers to that. I think, yeah, this this is a very, sorry, a very psychologist way of answering. It's sort of a yes, but. Um, it, I think I wouldn't have guessed clinical psychologist. I don't think psychology was on my radar leaving school as such. Um, but I think being in a helping profession and and uh, being part of research as well, yes, definitely. I think that that I could envisage, but certainly not clinical psychologist. I didn't think that that would be the pathway to get there. And so what's your advice for, say, people that are in the final year of school? They're not sure what they might want to do. They think they want to study, but they're just not sure. Have you got any advice for them? <laughs> I, I actually see quite a few patients like this anyway, so I feel like I'm just channeling channeling my patients. Um, I think I, I would absolutely normalise that they are 17, 18, whatever age they are. They do not need to have all the answers. I, I would encourage them to do what interests them um, rather than what they what others are telling them they should do or what they feel society tells them they should do because that will ultimately lead to sort of dissatisfaction in what they end up doing. So do what interests you. And there is no rush to go into study as well. Like if they feel they want more time to work this out, I think that's entirely appropriate as well. I think maybe getting some other life experiences can be really, really helpful for, for making that decision. And even once you're in study, just as I've done, it doesn't mean you necessarily end up doing what you first start studying either. I think it's a it's a lifelong journey, really, of working out what you love, what you find fulfilling, what you value. So I think my advice really in a nutshell is just be open to experiences and don't do what you think you should do, do what you want to do. Great advice. Dr. Gemma Sharp, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure talking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been terrific.